Hi, welcome to the Totally Well Show. I'm your host, Joyce Strong. The Totally Well Show is a place where we get curious, ask questions, and explore everything to do with health, wellness, fitness, and all the things it takes to help you live the highest quality, most fulfilling life. I'm honored and I'm excited to have Dr. Mark Gulston on the show today. Dr. G is a suicide specialist, and um, I will warn you that this is one of the most intimate conversations that I have had in my life. It's not an easy subject, but Dr. Goulston makes me feel very comfortable talking about it, and it's the first step in being being able to help other people and help ourselves if we ever find ourselves in that position of being in despair. So with that, you'll learn more about Dr. Goulston very shortly as we ease on into the interview. Over 20 years, I was a suicide specializing psychiatrist, and uh, I got to find some wood here because none of my patients killed themselves. And so I've been trying to figure out what the heck I did. What I'm particularly interested in talking with you about is suicide and suicide prevention, um, there have been some um, folks in our town here in Groton, sleepy little town, you wouldn't think, but um, it's really, I'm a, I'm a coach, I'm a, a nurse, and also I'm a hockey coach. So I've even lost some of my players that I coached when they were little. And it's just really heartbreaking to see, because I've you know known them their whole lives. I'm very curious about your medical background as a as a physician where you're got the medical background and your knowledge of that and how you tie that into what we can do and I'm also a very practical gal so I like to I like to be able to do something to make a difference and I was really drawn to your techniques so that's kind of where I wanted to go today how about you well that's fine and uh yes I I was a for I think over 20 years, I was a suicide specializing psychiatrist, and uh, I got to find some wood here because none of my patients killed themselves, and so I've been trying to figure out what the heck I did, mm-hmm. and I think I have, and I'm part of a documentary called Stay Alive, which is available for free. If people go to youtube.com forward slash stay alive video, I interview a fellow named Kevin Hines, who is a CNN champion for change. He jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge Mm -hmm. many years ago, and he's like a force of nature saving lives around the world. And so we kind of drilled into his suicidal mind and what caused him to choose suicide. And and part of my approach, uh, I was very fortunate, is that after I finished my residency training at UCLA, Uh, I didn't work for an institution, so I didn't have to check boxes. I just had to help people. Mm -hmm. And I feel for people who are in institutions who have to check boxes. I mean, you you have to write up certain notes, and you're serving several masters. Whereas what I discovered, uh, and one of my earliest mentors was a fellow named Dr. Edward Schneidman, and he's seen as the father of suicide prevention. He started the suicide prevention centers in Washington and Los Angeles and the American Association of Suicidology. And he would refer me still suicidal patients who needed to be discharged from the hospital. So they weren't acutely suicidal, but you can't keep them there forever. And so he'd refer them to me. And what I noticed as I was with them is the more that I was following a protocol, I'd look up into their eyes and while I'm checking boxes with my 
you know, with my pad in front of me, I could look in their eyes and their eyes were screaming out to me, you're checking boxes and I'm running out of time. <laughs> and, and again, I had the good fortune of being able to uh, put away checking boxes and I learned how to listen into their eyes. And there was one incident which really changed everything. And as you'll see behind me, there's a book that I wrote called Just Listen. And Just Listen is about how do you cause people to feel felt? And feeling felt is not the same thing as feeling understood. It's much deeper. And uh, there was a pivotal case uh, of a woman that Dr. Schneidman referred me, and she had made three or four suicide attempts in the previous several years and had been in the hospital many months. And we'll call her Nancy. And I didn't think I was making any progress with Nancy. I she never made eye contact like I'm making with you looking at my uh, camera instead of my computer. And, and she would be like this. And I didn't think I was helping her. Mm-hmm. And I used to early on moonlight, which meant I would cover for other psychiatrists at one of the state hospitals, state psychiatric hospitals. And, uh, uh, and so I'd been up 36 hours on one weekend and on Monday I came in to see Nancy on one day, and I'm a little bit overtired, a little bit disconnected. And so uh, there I am, and she's like this. And as I looked at her, all the color in the room turned to black and white. And I thought, wow, this is strange. And then I got the chills, and I got cold, and I felt I, I was having a seizure or stroke. I'm a medical doctor, so I did a neurologic exam on myself. And it wasn't rude because she wasn't looking at me. So I'm tapping my elbow going like this, looking at my finger like this, tapping my knees. And then I came to the conclusion that I wasn't having a stroke or seizure. But I had this crazy idea that I was looking at the world through her eyes and feeling what she was feeling. So I leaned into it. And as I leaned into it, it got much worse, much colder. And because I was sleep deprived, I blurted out to her, Nancy, I didn't know it was so bad, and I can't help you kill yourself. But if you do, I will still think well of you. Mm -hmm. I'll miss you, and maybe I'll understand why you had to do it to get out of all the pain. And when I said that, I thought, don't put that in the medical record. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, ah. I just gave her permission. And that was the first time she made eye contact. And she goes from like this to making eye contact. She grabbed onto my eyes. and, And I said to her, what are you thinking? I thought I had just blown it. I thought she was going to say, thank you for understanding. Uh, I'm overdue to try suicide. Mm -hmm. She looked at me, she looked right into my eyes, and she said, if you can really understand why I might have to kill myself to get out of the pain, maybe I won't need to. Mm -hmm. And she smiled. And I kept looking into her eyes, because we made this contact, I didn't want to let go of it, it was like a lifeline. And and I said, here's what we're going to do. I'm not going to give you advice, solutions, or treatments that you're not going to follow through on, and then you'll have to come back and be guilty telling me why you didn't do it. Would that be okay? And she looked at me with a look that said, uh, I'm intrigued to keep talking. And so I said, what I am going to do 
And I leaned in and I said, I'm going to find you wherever you are and keep you company there as long as it takes. Because you've been there too often, too alone at 2.30 in the morning, ticked off that you made it to seven. And I just don't want you to be there by yourself. Would that be okay? And she got a little teary-eyed. And so that's informed virtually everything I do, is how do you listen to people from their inside out? After Anthony Bourdain killed himself, I think it's just about a year ago, I wrote a, uh, an article called Why People Kill Themselves, It's Not Depression. It got 500,000 views and 70,000 reads in about six days because of the title. And in it, I said, you know, hundreds of millions, maybe billions of people are depressed. They don't all kill themselves. People lose jobs. They don't kill themselves. People get divorced. They don't all kill themselves. Uh, but in my experience, one of the things that I believe they all feel at the end is they feel despair. And if you break the word despair into D-E-S-P-A-I-R, they feel unpaired with reasons to live. Hopeless, helpless, worthless, powerless, useless, meaningless, pointless. And they pair with death to take the pain away. And so what I've discovered is if you can pair with them in the dark night of the soul, they'll pair with you. If they feel less alone, instead of feeling, pairing with death, the reason they pair with death is because death understands them. Death says, I can take all the pain away. Mm -hmm. And so that's informed really my approach. And uh, as you mentioned, uh, I, I've come up with something called targeted interventional empathy. Targeted interventional empathy. And for viewers who know of the uh, technology CRISPR, CRISPR goes into genes and it fixes them. It goes right into the genes and splices them and repairs them. And what targeted interventional empathy does, it goes into the dark night of the soul and it, with, with really direct aimed empathy, it touches the despair. Mm -hmm. It touches it with compassion and it's accurate. And one of the tools of targeted interventional empathy is what I call the seven words. And I see that you put them up and you'll be sharing them. And the seven words are things that you can use with someone who is depressed or maybe feeling worse. And it's a way to get them to open up. So let me demonstrate it. Imagine you're there with, you have a teenager you're worried about. He or she's in a dark place. And like most teenagers, uh, they're surly. Uh, you, you say, what's on your mind? I'm fine. Leave me alone. Well, you might feel better if you talk about it. Just leave me alone. Get off my back. And so what you do as a parent is you back off and you say, oh, okay, I understand, you know, because they're really scaring you. Uh, you could say, but you might feel better if you talked about it. I'm fine. Leave me alone. So if you can imagine that scenario, and by the way, one of the reasons they say that is they don't have confidence that talking about it will help. Plus, they, they feel inside, I've, I've scared you, and because you're scared, you're going to get panicky, and you're going to take me to this place, that place, another place, and none of it's going to help. 
so you run into that problem. And so, uh, so imagine that they say that to you. Instead of going like this and backing off, you calmly wait a couple seconds. Uh, and that shows them that you listen to what they said. And you say, yeah, I know you don't want to talk about it, but seven words. And they're going to look at you like, what? Or they're going to use some choice words that they may say. Uh, and you say, yeah, seven words. Uh, and then they look at you, but they re-engage. They're angry. And then you say the seven words, and you'll get this because of your background, and you're, get, and you're like a syringe pulling pus out of an abscess that's in the dark night of the soul. <laughs> so I know it gives you the chills, but, but you change your voice. Like, I'm going to change my voice now from AM to NPR. <laughs> so it's an inviting way. And, and you say, yes, seven words. And, uh, and you say it in an inviting way. So you're inviting them to pick one of the words. And you say, yeah, seven words. Hurt, afraid, angry, ashamed, alone, lonely, tired. Pick one. And when I've done that with suicidal people, and if you go watch the Stay Alive movie at uh, stay at you know, youtube.com forward slash stay alive video we've actually cut it a uh, cut you can see the whole documentary or you can see chapter seven which is about the seven words uh and you can see that when i use it with kevin hines the fellow who jumped over the jumped off the golden gate bridge and i and i give him the seven words you see he cocks his head and he smiles and i say pick one of them and he says all of them mm-hmm. and so by using this, you actually are inviting them into a conversation as opposed to posing questions, which often pushes people away. And then let's say your teenager says, you say, pick one, and they say, angry. And you say, good, take me to your angriest. And they'll say, what? It take me to when you were feeling the angriest. And here's the interesting thing that therapists will understand and for people who are uh, therapy patients might not realize is when you get someone to talk and describe something so specifically that you as the listener, you as the parent, you as the therapist can see it with your eyes, they re-experience the event. So when you say, take me to the angriest that it's worse, and they say, at 2.30 in the morning, I was just pacing around my bedroom. I couldn't get to sleep. You know, I felt like, putting my fist through the wall and, you know, and I, everybody was uh, asleep and I, uh, and I was looking around in your medicine cabinet to see if you had any sleeping pills and I took a bunch of Tylenol. And so as they're describing it, the interesting thing is they're re-experiencing it, but they're not alone. Mm-hmm. They're sharing it with you. Now, the key is this takes a little bit of practice. And the point is you can't get all freaked out if you're a parent or a therapist, because if you get freaked out, what they're going to feel is, see, I knew I shouldn't have opened up. Mm. And what you want to do is keep them talking because that drains the pus. And, and, and other things you can ask them, you know, at its worst, uh, how alone did you feel? Totally alone. 
uh, what did it make you want to do? Well, I told you, I, I was looking for pills and I was thinking of taking a bunch of pills. And, and well, what did you do? Mm -hmm. Well, I took a couple of Tylenol and, you know, just went back to bed. And by the way, as they're telling you this, they're feeling better because they're feeling less alone. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and then something else you can say to them is, um, I don't want you to feel alone like that anymore. And if I'm a parent talking to a teen and I, and I'm, and I have that connection going, I might say, I have a favor to ask you. Uh, if you're feeling that way, I want you to do whatever it takes to get my attention. Because sometimes I'm wrapped up in everything I'm doing, but I can't allow you to be alone there. Because mm. you're my kid. And I just don't want you to be there by yourself. So can you follow and track with that, Joyce, how that might open people up? I, I certainly can. And I'm at the same time, I'm thinking about the words you're saying, the technique. I've, I, I often tell my patients and clients that they can change their own biochemistry. And I, I watched some of this um, stay alive. I haven't watched the whole thing through yet, but I know it starts with the breathing technique that I've heard you talk about. And um, can you say a little bit about that with the what's actually happening with the cortisol and um, oxytocin? Yeah, so, so what's actually happening is when people are stressed out, your adrenal glands uh, secrete cortisol. And cortisol gets your body ready to deal with adversity. And when your cortisol goes up, it triggers a part of your brain called the amygdala. Now, our brain really functionally, functionally is in three parts. We have a thinking prefrontal cortex, human brain, rational brain. We have a middle mammalian brain, which is our emotional brain, and that's where the amygdala is. And then we have a lower fight or flight or freeze reptilian survival brain. Okay. So what happens is when your cortisol is high, it goes and it triggers the amygdala to uh, redirect the blood flow to your lower survival brain away from your upper brain. So that's why people who are kind of freaked out can't hear solutions mm -hmm. because the blood is going to their lower survival brain and they might go, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. But really what they are is they're feeling more agitated and they're scaring you. And see, what people don't know is that the antidote to high cortisol is oxytocin. And oxytocin is the bonding hormone. It's what we feel when, you know, when someone says to us, unsolicited, they see us, they say, are you okay? And I pull back, and, and it's one of our friends who cares about us, and they say, uh, something's going on. Tell me about it. And people often start to cry, and you're not making them cry. The oxytocin and the connectedness, and they're not feeling so alone, is enabling them to cry, and they're crying with relief. And that's a very important thing to recognize, that crying with frustration is different than crying with relief. And you don't want to shut your kid down when they start to cry and think you're making it worse when actually you're making it better. Yeah, and that's what the oxytocin does, is that uh, uh, you suddenly feel less alone in hell, 
and and you feel relief and you start to cry with relief mm-hmm. i know from um a, a parent of five kids and with each one i say they've elevated my parenting skills and i learned that there's there is a time when i can talk with them and there's a, a time when they they can't hear me you know and it, it can be maybe they're under the influence of something maybe it's um, they're under the influence of their own biochemistry. And um, so these techniques just seem so helpful to the, the, the little things that you're doing, the pauses, the tone, um, the breathing, the, those words, they all meant so much to me because I can, I can feel the impact. Because what you're doing is you're inviting them into a sentence with you. Okay. In other words, you're saying words and you know that they're feeling some I'll share an anecdote with you. And if people are listening, you know, I, I grew up near Boston, drag me back because I want to do this at more high schools. About a month ago, I was part of a panel at Hollywood High School <coughs> in Hollywood, California. Mm-hmm. It was an after school event. And, uh, and on the panel, there were two therapists and a life coach and me. And whenever I'm on a panel, I always say, have me talk last, because I know something about connecting people. And, and I got a sense that by the time it was my turn, the, the students were getting a little bit fidgety. And they'd mainly come because they wanted the free potato chips and the sandwiches and the Coca-Cola. Yeah. And, and the other panelists were great. They started giving uh, instructional information, but I could tell the students were really stressed out. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and some of them were just checking out because, oh, here's another lecture. When can we get to the sandwich and potato chips? So when it was my turn, uh, and I wrote a blog, uh, you can find it. Uh, uh, it's called Scaling Compassion, Hollywood High Meets the Seven Words. And so when it was my turn, uh, I said to the 40 or so students assembled in the cafeteria, I said, I'm going to do something different. I'm part of a documentary, and I used seven words with a person who had tried to commit suicide. Uh, and I'm going to use them with you, and I want each of you to say the word that you relate to. And I'm going to say the word as if I'm inviting you to get the feeling off your chest. So I'm not dictating something that there's going to be a test on. I'm just going to say the words, and I said them in the way that I said them to you. So if you can imagine, I'm there in front of these students, and I said, here are the seven words. Hurt, afraid, angry, ashamed, alone, lonely, tired. Pick one. And then one by one, they each said the word. And then I asked them, how did that feel? And they said, oh, that felt better. Why? Why? I felt less alone. I feel relief. Mm-hmm. I uh, uh, did you did you look down at anyone uh, who used one of the words? No, not at all. And then I said to them, and I'm saying this to you, and I'm saying this to high schoolers, teachers, and parents. I said to the high schoolers, I said, "There's four emotions that you live your life by, and those four emotions are." Excitement, boredom, fear, and anger. Excitement, boredom, fear, and anger. Mm-hmm. Was what we just did any of those? No. And it was better. Yes. So here's your homework. Write down the seven words. 
And if you're worried about a friend, go go talk to him about it. See if you can go and ease some of the pain in your friend. And afterwards, one of the facilitators came up to me and said, you know, I was behind all of them when you did that. And it was really remarkable because when it was each student's turn, they tensed because they were on the spot. And when they said the word, they relaxed their shoulders. They leaned into it. Uh, And so, you know, we're uh, hopefully going to do more programs like that. And again, uh, if you're listening or watching this, you don't need me to do it. I've just given you the whole kit and caboodle, but (laughs) I am on a mission to lessen suicide because it's an epidemic and uh, I can't get it out of my head. Well, I'm, the Groton Channel, where this is going to air, is housed inside of the Groton Dunstable Regional High School. And you know, I sent my kids, um, um, most of them went there. So you know I'll be sharing this with, with them and other educators who I know to see if I can, um, can support your mission. And I'd love to get you to Boston. <laughs> so. I like that. Yeah, one of the things we're, we're, we're doing is showing the uh, documentary stay alive and then doing a Q&A and when Kevin's available or I'm available we'll do that and then we uh, you know and then we have a discussion and we do some role playing and you know we, we want to do our part to um, stop teen suicide. Mm-hmm. What I'm also discovering is, which I think might be a, one of the good things about the internet is there are a lot of young people who have some of the skills. I'm, I'll be 66 next week, and it's taken me a long time to get what I know. And I'm seeing 30-year-olds now who can do what I do. And I'm like, how did that happen? How did you learn? And just to put your defenses down or your ego down and get vulnerable and do that. So I'm very hopeful to be able to build a, um, an, an army of people who can do this um, because you can't do it all. I can't do it all. But I know I can help. I know I can be part of that. That'd be great. Well, also, if you go to my Twitter feed, it's at Mark Goulston, M-A-R-K-G-O-U-L-S-T-O-M. Mm-hmm. I have permanently pinned at the top of my feed. I think it's a year old now. Uh, have you ever known of or known someone who died by suicide in your community, You know, in your school, college, temple, church. And it has 2.4 million impressions and over 1,500 comments. And I commented. It, <laughs> yeah, it's chilling. Mm. If you've been touched by suicide and you feel so alone with it, it's actually saving some lives. I mean, when you just read people listing off the people they know who have died by suicide, it's heart-wrenching. It's really painful but people have been touched by it feel really alone. I'll tell you my biggest challenge, Joyce, and I welcome all the help I can, can get. Mm-hmm. Um, the only people that really care about suicide are the ones who've been personally affected by it. Someone in their family, they've made attempts. It's too painful for the majority of people. And of course, they'll think about it when it's in the news. Guess who killed themselves? Or you hear about it sadly from your hockey team or, or something like that. But then it passes because it's so painful. Mm-hmm. And, and so any help we can get with keeping it out there and, and helping prevent uh, suicide, we welcome. I, I, it occurred to me as we started our call, to, <coughs> and we're just about out of time, but 
Um, this is perhaps one of the most intimate conversations I've ever had with another human being. This one right now? Yeah. Well, um, you made, as Helen Hunt said to Jack Nicholson, as good as it gets, you made me want to be a better man, Joyce. <laughs> <laughs> now, you remember that movie, and I do, but nobody else does. <laughs> <laughs> it happens to me a lot, but, uh, um, well, I, I thank you. I, like I said, I'm going to do our intro and outro afterward, but I really appreciate your sharing this, and um, and I will, with all sincerity, approach the high school where, where I live, where I've been for 22 years, and... Mm -hmm and see um, what's up with that. And I'll, I'll uh, check in with you to find out the logistics of how that might happen. Um, and I do hope that you'll reach out to me if there's something I, I personally can do to support you. Uh, well, I will. Uh, I'm actually partnering with a fellow named Jason Reed, mm -hmm. and he has a TEDx talk called The Most Important Conversation You Can Have With Your Teenager. Mm -hmm. And he's doing a documentary because his 14-year-old son hung himself last year. Oh God! And uh, and he left two suicide notes. One was the the passwords to his computer and other technology, and the other note was "Tell my story." And Jason uh, and I and he's doing a movie called "Tell My Story." <sighs> Start a foundation called ChooseLife.org, and his personal mission, which I'm joining in, is end teen suicide by 2030. Well, I'd certainly like to be part of it. It's, you know, I'm I'm now on my second line with my grandchildren and uh you know, I'm just you know, I and as you know, I've heard your story as well. I've had moments in my own life that have been um been challenging and so I I think you have to have some of that um ability to empath to to really be effective here. And I think I have some of that. All uh, right. Well, hey, it's been intimate on my side too, Jay. So, <laughs> so you're not going to get rid of me that easily. <laughs> Very good. Well, thank you, Dr. G. I really appreciate it. Well, th thank you for giving me a, a, a long leash, and I hope I didn't uh, overstay my welcome. No, not at all. I, I value your time, and um, we can do it again. We will. We will. Okay. We'll all right. Continue. Thank you so much. All right. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.